Welcome to Fiction to Function. I'm Sean Melton. This is a conversation that I was able to have with my wife, Paige, regarding Encanto, the Eternals, and the way that they display aspects of the Enneagram. It's part of two episodes that we're releasing pretty close to one another. Both have to do with Disney and the weight that it has in culture and the way that whether it recognizes it or not, it is helping to, or hurting, in controlling the narrative, literally. Also, just so everyone knows, there are going to be spoilers for Encanto, as well as Marvel's The Eternals. Thanks. Hope you enjoy. I kind of hate talking about the, like, Disneyfication of everything, because it makes it sound like I hate Disney. And... And I, that would be a very unfair criticism to make if were somebody listening and taking having that as their takeaway because we've gotten in like like disagreements with people about Spider Man very recently because you know like everybody you know who was in our direct group who went to go see Spider Man just loved it and I don't think we were just caught up in the hysteria of it I think that we we spent a lot of time picking apart why it was so powerful. You know what I mean? Yeah. But for all the things that that I think Disney's doing well, and and I don't think that the problem is pinned directly on Disney, but I think that there's I think there's concern to be had, you know, to to say nothing of the whole global monopoly <laughs> that is Disney. I think that I think there's some uh, from a, you know, from an ec- economic standpoint. Yeah. Like how monopolies work in general you like become concerned with the quality of a product from a monopoly rather than an open market yeah you know it's exactly what it's becoming yeah um we talk about this you know this podcast is going to be there's two podcasts that uh we plan to release pretty close to one another that kind of both that both kind of work in tandem with one another and they're both speaking about this idea and and we've mentioned in the the podcast I just recorded with my brothers and Victor that that more and more directors are kind of coming out saying that and people who you know just follow the movie industry in general whether it's like from an economic standpoint or an artistic standpoint that more and more it's looking like theaters are going to be big spectacles that's what it's going to that's what people will fill theaters for people will not fill theaters to go see uh, the tragedy of Macbeth People yeah. will not fill theaters to go see um, 127 Hours or whatever. People will fill theaters to go see Spider-Man, No Way Home, or Doctor Strange, you know, Multiverse of Madness. That's what it's going to become. Mm-hmm. Neither here nor there. The point that I'm making is there is an economic aspect to this, which is one reason I want to talk to you about this, because you care about economics. Something mm-hmm. I, well, I don't want to say I care very little about because it impacts me. But I don't read books on it like mm-hmm. you do. I mean, I guess from that perspective in general, what do you, what concerns you most about the Disney Disney Palooza? From like an economic standpoint, yeah. Um, well, it's just that if they become so large that they push their competitors out of the market, they're not beholden to their customers to compete for their attention against somebody else's. movie or media or whatever the case may be so it just the the standard isn't required 
to be held because of competition it would just have to be like an internal like moral standard that the company holds and who knows if that will exist you know (laughs) yeah or if it will ebb and flow with leadership or the individuals that are working on a project you know i'm sure each person involved in the work wants their best foot put forward but how much is that a priority of the company of a whole right well and that's the difficult thing we're looking at right now because i think that as of now by and large the content they're putting out is really remarkable i remember when because i remember when uh disney plus came out and i had actually told shane that i wasn't super interested and you know i was like i'll be you know i mean i'll get it i'm gonna have it um at the time it was primarily for the mandalorian Mm-hmm. And uh, I think there was one other. I think it was WandaVision. I think that that was the first one. Mm-hmm. And Shane said and was utterly correct. He's like, there's going to be a point where it's just it's going to be monthly. There's going to be a big show that you're in. It's exactly what it's been. Mm-hmm. When what we've we done, we've watched WandaVision through and then yeah. Loki or Mandalorian and <laughs> Mandalorian if? season two. What if whatever it is, yeah. you know what I mean? Boba Fett. Now we're in the middle of Boba Fett. As soon as Boba Fett's over, there's gonna be the next thing. Before Boba Fett, we were watching Hawkeye, and then you're going to movie theater, watch Spider Man, and yeah, yeah. And then we were going and watching the. Now this is in in the purpose of this podcast is not to zero in on the nefarious possibilities, which I think is a fair conversation. I'm not even here to narrow in on the economic. Uh, issues it could hold, which I think is an issue. I mostly want to narrow, and I'm not here to attack Disney as a quality killer because there's a lot of people who I've been hearing arguments against Disney MCU films or whatever for a while, and, and I've utterly disagreed with. I mean, I I hold to date that I don't think that there's been a bad entry, a fully bad entry to the to the MCU. Right. That's personally, yeah. even. The Eternals, which is something that will get talked about here, uh, I think has great merits. I just think it was executed horrendously. Um, but I, I think they've done a great job. And if and anybody who doubts that can just go listen to our, our Spider-Man uh, No Way Home podcast. But what I do want to zero in on is something else that's really close to you and I, which is conversations that are being had whether it's on purpose by Disney or not, regarding, let's cast a really wide net and say different philosophies or uh, typologies or or tenets of the human condition. That's a really wide net. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, we talked in our other podcast, which I don't know if is going to be released before or after this one, but with me and my brothers and Victor, we had talked a lot about kind of, is there a room for an anti-hero in Marvel? Which is a great way to start this, right? Like, can the Mm -hmm. Punisher exist in the MCU right. because the MCU is now under the umbrella of Disney. This conversation I want to have a little bit more predicated um, on another passion of, of yours and mine. And one of the passions I think that really brought us together uh, romantically mm-hmm. is the Enneagram, right? Yeah. Why don't you talk to me about you, why you got brought into the Enneagram or how that happened? Um, well, that happened, um, through a couple friends of mine who had um, just told me about the impact it had on their lives and they want they were just curious about getting to know me better um, and I ended up taking the test and it really resonated with who I am and gave me a better understanding for myself and Seth gave you the test right Didn't um he? so I think 
Jess gave me an initial online test. Okay. And then Another friend Seth, of ours, yeah. Yeah, gave me a test through using the, the cards. From the um, Enneagram Institute, the yeah. Russo-Hudson cards. Okay. Yeah, so... And then it gave me a better understanding of others and just, you know, as we usually talk about language, to talk in a really open manner with people. Like a um, shared language to discuss our differences. Yeah, and give you better understanding of one another. So it was just super interesting to me and I want to improve upon myself and grow and this was a really helpful tool for me to do that. How soon after you took the Enneagram did you wind up working? You wound up working for a college. Um, probably two years. Two two years after. Yeah. And when you wor- started working for a college, didn't you bring you brought the Enneagram into your work there, right? Yeah, I mean, with any tool that you find helpful in yourself, you end up bringing it to the table wherever you're at. But um, there, some of my other colleagues knew about the Enneagram, so we were able to discuss it, and it helped us interpersonally with our staff and then I was able to help provide like my knowledge to help test other people um some of the students there that were on leadership teams and help them understand themselves and um do like small trainings with smaller leadership groups and things like that um for those that were open to it so it was just kind of a tool that I try to make available to students and staff members that I grew close to over my time there. I guess before we go too much further, I should kind of give us, <laughs> it's not quite a preface. It's like a, <laughs> a preface five minutes in, but that the Enneagram is, you know, it's a personality system predicated on nine different personality types that have nine different habits of attention that they tend to be drawn towards. And it's a, a very effective, efficient means of, uh, traveling as I like to say the road of mindfulness which you're going to have to travel at some point in your life if you want to be a healthy well-rounded individual so you started using it with students and then at some point you and I wound up teaching it together yeah which was before or after we dated um we started before like right before yeah okay that's what I thought Mm-hmm. We were kind of like already talking a little bit is we've been we were friends for four years before we started dating just yeah. so the world knows yeah. and then uh, at a certain point we found ourselves um, both working what did what, what how did you remember the first one we did the first Enneagram yeah we were we um, through our mutual friend Nicole we okay. went and worked with her her staff team and did um, a workshop with the leadership group at her company. And how did that wind up being you and I? Um, I think through our mutual friendship. Okay. She just knew that we were... Both people who were a- kind of actively using it in personal and professional capacities, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. And so it, we wound up doing that workshop, and then eventually we wound up teaming up with a good friend of both of ours, um, Paul Vandergriff who uh, recently passed away, actually, um, great friend of ours, uh, who we both love dearly. He kind of, we kind of came this triad, this like team of people who would, and we used it in a lot of churches and businesses and organizations and uh, mm-hmm. with, with individuals as well. But we kind of became this like Enneagram consultant, for, which I think the name changed like five times and we never really landed on one. Yeah. But we, was, we worked as a team, yeah. yeah. Okay, um, 
the reason that I give context to all of that, the Enneagram is such an interesting and dynamic tool. Nobody owns it. As a matter of fact, there was a point where somebody tried to. There was some sort of legal back and forth, and they wound up saying, no, it's kind of a discovery. So a lot of people are using it. So it's a really strange kind of like... Um, I've, had, I've heard it described by uh, an Enneagram teacher at a conference we both attended. Tom Condon uh, described the Enneagram right now as the Wild West. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's exactly kind of what I'm trying to talk about is that this is, we're not going to be talking about these grand uh, new discoveries that need to have a stringent set of rules placed upon them in terms of how they should be communicated. But there are kind of general guidelines and more and more we're finding certain knowledge out that says... Uh, it doesn't. This doesn't seem to really work the way that some people say it does, and and this is kind of my concern. Is um, and it's been a concern I've had for a long time, being that because you've worked with the Enneagram for how long now? Maybe like seven years. No way, longer than that. Has to be right. I don't think so. I think it's like probably more officially of like We've training been, other people. Okay, I mean yeah. you took the Enneagram. When I say working with, I mean oh, yourself. like personally, um, like probably closer to ten years. For me, it was fifteen. I'm at my 15-year mark since I took the Enneagram and started really diving into it. And there's been a lot of evolutions that have come over that time. I'm a big fan of using fiction, obviously, per this podcast, to help people maybe understand their maybe habitual nature and their habits of attention and some of their tendencies through maybe examples and fictional characters. And this isn't anything new. In fact, one of the earliest things that fascinated me, one of the, the, the earliest fictional example that I was given about the Enneagram was Winnie the Pooh. Going over those very broadly, um, one through nine, you have uh, the type one in Rabbit, which tend to be very organized, orderly, um, uh, perfectionistic. They like to make order out of chaos. They have kind of like a grown-up mentality, which you see exemplified in rabbit a lot is that he's kind of always making lists and everything is in order and you know he wants everybody to be doing the right thing and doing it properly uh the type two is kanga which is a caretaker um she's very helpful and likes looking after other people she's kind of like the mother of the group uh others focused there to kind of um nurture and care for the 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 other members her son, Rue, is the example of the type three, which um, kind of always having something to do, uh, always trying to impress, always trying to fly higher. There's always an episode I think about with uh, Rue and a kite. I think he's like, trying to fly on the kite. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's always trying to kind of jump higher and, you know, a little bit of a show off, but like in a, in a or good-natured way, at least exemplified in Rue. The four is Eeyore, which is kind of more emotive, um, it can be a little bit glum. It's not always glum, but it's very deep, um, meditative, can be melancholic, strong emotions. The five is exemplified in Al, a little off on his own. He's always reading all these books. They're very intellectual. They tend to be very introspective. Um, and so Al is kind of always philosophizing and, <laughs> and, and uh, articulating himself and kind of, he's kind of like a scholar uh, to the other characters. The type six is represented in Piglet, who is um, very loyal, very kind, very caring, a good friend, also a little frightful, uh, can be uh, a little bit um, anxious, nervous, skeptical. (laughs) The seven in Tigger, which is enjoying life, having fun, 
going on adventures, optimistic, lighthearted, uh, fast-moving, quick-paced. The type 8 is represented in Gopher, who's kind of a mover and shaker. As little as he is, he's a tough guy, he's, very, he's got a job to do, he's very assertive and forthright and in his communication style, very protective, and and uh, and then the type nine is is Winnie the Pooh, who's very peaceful and gentle and kind and easygoing, uh, can be quietly insightful as he's, you know, kind of existing on, even though he's the center of the the, the books or the show or whatever, he's also very go along to get along, and that's a very brief description of the types. 10,000 feet overview. And that was the first representation that was shown to me. I say this to say nobody has a right to, or a a sole claim to exemplifying these characters in a specific medium. So how does all this stuff connect? I have been finding that one of Marvel's properties recently in Enneagram circles has really been blowing up as a way of understanding the Enneagram. And it represents a concern to me that is much longer standing than this one instance in and of itself. This is something I've noticed for a long time. I've been part of Enneagram groups and on different social media platforms, and i got to tell you more and more, I kind of just find myself disengaging from them. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason I find myself disengaging from them is because I, a lot of times they're filled with really generalized stereotypes that I don't feel like are helpful past like an initial understanding or you'll find people uh, asking for support or in certain ways but they're kind of boxing themselves in where the purpose of the Enneagram is kind of to to recognize you have a box and kind of free yourself from um, the restraints that your your ego places on you Um, have you noticed the same thing or um I've I've noticed some of that I mean I'm I probably didn't engage on social media to start as much with those groups as you have, so I haven't had to disengage from them because I didn't join them as much to start. Um, You're a little bit more easygoing than I am, too. Yeah, a little bit. I'll just scroll past. (laughs) Yeah, I have a hard time scrolling past. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, there's always been a little bit of a level of, um, you know, there can be... A general excitement when you start to engage with something new that's brought insight into your life and you want to see that in all things around you yeah but that can easily become superficial yeah if it is where the mindset stays so with a tool like the enneagram that's not the goal and so if you continue to see that mindset of people places you're concerned that they're not going beyond that yeah it's kind of like deciding that you want to learn to swim and then just staying on the steps. Yeah. It really is. And then going, water's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I love swimming. And yeah. It's okay, there's, but there's a lot more to be done, you know. Yeah, and there's than... nothing wrong with, like, the pool's steps. No. Because they're there for a reason. Yeah. But there's also a whole lot of other pool. Yeah, that's right. It's exactly yeah. it. Um, and so I want to talk about that uh, as it pertains to two movies that are part of Disney properties. Um, and the first one I want to talk about uh, is Encanto. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because we're going to look at, like, these two films are going to be a mirror of each other. And it's Encanto, and then I want to talk about some of Marvel's The Eternals. I don't know if someone wrote Encanto around the Enneagram, 
there are people borderline making that claim at this juncture. Now, these are not people who work for Disney or anything. This is a lot of insight um, that is, uh, this is a perspective that is being projected from a lot of commentators like you see it a lot on youtube and in a lot mm-hmm. of enneagram groups but i mean it's blowing up in a lot of the groups that i'm i have a watchful eye over <laughs> yeah that i'm in but i don't participate in and there is a degree to which Encanto does almost seem like i could i could see a world where someone took a, a the enneagram types on one sheet of paper and said oh i can write a story on this and then made what they consider to be archetypes but I don't think that those archetypes do, a f- in, in the long run, I don't think they do a faithful job communicating the type. Now, that doesn't mean to say that Encanto is without, val- with, without some merit or validity yeah, to some of the things that it's, which is a conversation and debate you and I have had, which is another reason I wanted to talk about this with you. But I, I think that just to be very clear about my intention here, it's not to justify or validate or tear down or demean either of these movies i think that they both have positive and negative qualities which we can talk about as we move forward but it is to kind of give a fuller comprehensive understanding to anybody who might be clicking on this episode because they go the enneagram and encanto i love encanto you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) which seems to be what's happening right now so encanto you liked it yeah i thought it was okay yeah i thought it was a, a a mile wide and an inch deep, which is part of my concern from an Enneagram perspective. I would like to start with some positives that Encanto conveys, some positive qualities of it, despite the fact that is the animation good? Yeah, of course it is. Is Mm -hmm. it probably going to win the best picture, best animated film? Yeah, because Disney. Is, are there a couple of songs that I like? Yeah, there are, there are a couple songs that are pretty good. Uh, what did you like? Like or love Encanto? Like. Not love. Probably not love. Okay, what did you like most about Encanto? Um, I think I what I liked most is the idea of the theme of the movie, like being the significance of family and the pressures and the positivity that can bring. Yeah. Um, it the family dynamic almost felt like its own character within the movie, mm-hmm. and I feel like. Within so many stories, it's, you know, one character against another or, you know, this group of people against another group of people. And there's no, yeah, there's no villain. No, there's no villain in this movie, but it's this idea of like family and communal pressure and what impact that has on its own family and community. Yeah. And the positive and negative that community can have on one another. And I thought that was really interestingly done. I also thought it was, you know, like you said, the animation was great. The music was really good. Um, And it's also a children's movie, and I thought it did a good job of bringing some of those themes to the table too, of like showing family can have pressure, but it's also like a really good thing to have in your life. Yeah. Yeah, so I I think... Is a general rule, as I've gotten older, my aim in approaching art is to be more curious and less critical. Uh, and, and not just in art, but in a number of areas in life, uh, per- particularly as it pertains to trying to empathize with other people and, and see different perspectives. 
Um, and so my intention is not to dunk on the movie, and uh, I think that I think that everything you addressed is is very significant. Um, I thought it had a lot to say. I appreciated what it had to say about the effects of trauma that trauma can have on a family, mm-hmm. the longevity of certain uh, wounds the families endured. Yeah, uh, is exemplified by the the their. The, the patriarchal figure, the... The grandfather. The grandfather, yeah, yeah. Who, who passed away from... Do we figure out what... I didn't really understand exactly who had killed... Yeah, I mean, when him. I was looking it up later, it looked like it was a commentary on not one event, but um, just generally the 1,000-year war. Of, okay. There was this... Um, all these negative events happening, so it wasn't a specific one historical event, more as like what was encompassed by this time period. Right. Yeah. It's interesting because you and so you and I are both not. I mean, <laughs> neither of us are Colombian, yeah. right? Um, but we both come from fairly big families mm-hmm. where social roles are pretty well established. Yeah. I yes. Mean, I would say most families, interestingly enough, you're going to find yourself in the social role yeah. that your family needs of you for a time period or. For years at a time. I was just saying, sometimes that time period gets stuck. Yes. Because yeah. you became the person who helped the family through that specific, or you played this specific role, with whatever role it is. You're the oldest, more is expected of you. You're the youngest, we don't really want to hear from, you know, what you have to see. You're just the baby. Mm-hmm. We, we should, yeah, but he's 38. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but he's the baby of the family. Yeah, we need you to go along to get along yeah. because the other things are happening right now or whatever the case may be yeah and again i think the movie like as i said it's a mile wide and an inch deep because it it covers a span of a ton of amazing and powerful and important themes and messages but i don't feel like any of them are adequately or substantially explored to past i mean i would say the shallow end of the pool Mm -hmm. um but that is the overwhelming positive element is without a doubt this idea that not even just within a family, and this Mm -hmm. is where this works as an excellent medium to kind of talk about the Enneagram, is that it may not even just be a family. Maybe it's in a social group or a friends group. The biggest qualities the movie has are first relating to generational trauma and the effects that it can have on a family. Two, speaking about this idea of you have a role in a family and that is your role. That's, That's the role you inhabit, full stop. And the problems that come when we start viewing people like that. And then finally, this idea that it speaks to this idea that you're more than the sum of your parts, right? And that's something that is the Enneagram teaches directly, which is that you have a gift, <laughs> to quote mm-hmm. the film. You aren't that. But you you, you may have a gift, but... You're what more they, than that. Yeah. What do they say in the film? The gift is, you know, it's like the gift is you or you are the gift or mm-hmm. but the point is is that yeah you're not the essence in the enneagram the idea is is that you have a certain strength set and you have certain challenges and you have a certain perspective and worldview and there's validity to that but it's not the whole of who you are and when you start confusing the piece for the whole you start really really getting in some deep trouble and i think that the film does a great job on that i'm i'm fine with using all that as an allegory for how we should approach the Enneagram and how we should approach viewing ourselves as a full, complex individual. The The problem starts to creep in, in so far as I see it. Fine example. We'll just go ahead and start off with uh, the character Louisa. 
because that's the one that has I've seen being blowing up the most. In in large part, I think probably because well, for one, her song I think is the, maybe is the best one. Yeah, I do think I do think it's the best song. Yeah. Um, but I was seeing a lot of people. I have heard people claim her is a type eight, mm-hmm. which is that's the I think leading theory. I've seen people claim her as a type two, mm-hmm. and I've seen people claim her as a type one. Yeah. First and foremost, there is nothing wrong with anybody who's not. I don't think I'm the personality type that Peter Parker is. Me and my brothers are all different Enneagram types. And three of us just had this conversation about Peter Parker uh, on the Spider-Man podcast. And none of us are, I think, the same type that probably Peter most resembles. But we all resonate with Peter Parker deeply. There's nothing wrong with that. But what, what concerns me is that Louisa is being brought up specifically as one type. She has one equalities of this responsibility that she feels like she needs to carry and she needs to be the person who tries to take on all that. Her temperament seems more like a two, I think, if you're looking more closely. Mm-hmm. Um, she does seem like a helper. She does care about people. But the, the type that is overwhelmingly being attributed to her is that of the type eight. Mm-hmm. Why? Because she's strong. Because she's powerful. Yeah. She's got big muscles. Yeah. She's tough. She's strong. She can literally lift like a house. Mm -hmm. So when you start playing fast and loose with stereotypes like that, what do you lose? I mean, you kind of lose the significance of what this tool is even for. You know, I mean, I I don't necessarily have a problem with an animated feature not going that deep into characters in order to be able to determine their Enneagram type because I think it's good for children to have characters that they can look up to and relate to. And I don't think it's necessarily always a weakness that movies don't go deeper, but I think it's good when they do Yeah. Um, for that reason so that children can see themselves in the characters they're viewing. But when adults are trying to hang their hat on their own betterment and growth on these caricatures and these loose typesets that we're placing on each of them, I think that's problematic. And, and I, I'm, I didn't think about this until right now, actually, uh, but there are very specific ways that each of me, Seth, and Shane all probably resonate with Louisa. I, and I didn't think about that till we're recording this right now. And so when you're watching that and you go, well, which one of us most resonates with Louisa, which is not an argument we had or something we feel or any, but the, it, it creates a room for that. It creates a room for sort of, you have to be this, you can't be Batman mm-hmm. because you're not the type Batman is. Yeah. And, that's, and, and that's a hurtful thing to do because there may be something in that person that resonates to that quality or at least admires that quality and wants to emulate it in certain ways now that's not to say by the way that there are people who i've met a good few people who fancy themselves one sort of role and maybe they really aren't maybe that's a hard reality they maybe need to take a look at i'm not saying that it's kind of a gray area here but the point that i'm trying to make is is there a reality where each of those siblings 
where three different people can resonate with Louisa in different ways and be totally different personality types. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And when someone comes in here and says, Louisa's a type eight, without any following up, because that would be different too. If you want to say, here's a caricature, but we're going to look at it like a caricature. Yeah. But that's not what I'm seeing. Nobody's going any further than the fact that she's strong. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't mean to spend so much time on Louisa because I think that you know, I don't know how much time we'll spend on each type, but that's that's a theme that I see with all of them. Um, and right now I'm kind of breaking it down based on the family groups within the family group, right? Because there's mm -hmm. the there's the grandmother, her children, three kids, yeah, and then their kids, yeah. Well, and like most of these Enneagram things aren't even taking into account all of those characters. Sure. Two of the two of the daughters are married and yeah. their husbands are in the home. And I haven't heard people talk much yeah. about the, the, the spouses. Yeah. I haven't heard people talk much about the grandmother, who I think is yeah. really worth exploring. Yeah. Um, and which, I, I mean, I guess we can move there next. What would you, uh, what would you have typed the grandmother as? I mean, I got major one vibes from her okay so did i but i think that too is like uh well i'm a one and i felt really yes i okay. am <laughs> surprise um i i got major one themes throughout the whole movie because i think her presence over the home and over the family she was projecting her expectations out onto her children yeah. and grandchildren. Well, and there is a rigidity to her. And this is not picking on any types of, right? Like there yeah. is this sort of like, everybody has a role. I think a rigidity she held even to herself. I mean, she didn't deal with her trauma, which is heartbreaking. Yeah. Right? And even like uh, the pressure she was placing on others was because of seeming stress she had around the candle staying lit throughout the movie to continue to help the village, to make her husband's sacrifice worthwhile. Yeah. There was a lot of pressure she was putting on others and putting on herself because of this idea that that was the most important thing. Right. So I, I'll say right now, I haven't heard any other type attributed to the grandmother from anybody who's spoken to me about this other than the type one. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm with you on that. But I bring her up in contrast to, again, no one's talking about her. That... that no one's commenting like none of these youtube videos right people in my personal sphere have discussed her that character with me but nobody on a profession on like a um nobody who's who's making youtube videos about this or podcasts about this mm -hmm. i've heard yeah, thus far we're the first one i've heard to speak about that and then record it and then release it um and but the but the character that does get attributed the type one is isabella Mm-hmm. Why is Isabella the type one? Oh, well, everybody says she's perfect. Because that word gets... One of the, the words, one of the terms associated with the type one is the perfectionist. So just the term perfect being associated with that character has lent itself to people... I think misidentifying her very likely is a type one mm -hmm. when that's not the feeling I really get from her at all. You, you disagree? I, I, well, I don't necessarily disagree, but I think it could be the case. It could be. Yeah. It's hard to tell. Okay. So let's contrast her. Here's, here's what, here's a good way to, to maybe 
pick it apart. Let's contrast Isabella to another character who I think is certainly type one um, in the Disney sphere, which is Elsa from Frozen. Yeah. Conceal, don't feel, you know, lock it all up. Don't express your feelings. You're expected to be prim and proper. And so she's, and then, you know what I mean? And eventually then you sing the song. I don't know if you've heard it, let it go. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> so this song is all this idea of just like, I can't keep holding all this in. Now the characters vibe together very much in one sense, because you have the same thing with Isabella, right? Where she, when she lets it go, all of her fl- these flowers are blooming and all of this. And it's like, mm-hmm. Oh, by being a little bit more free and not being so whatever everybody's expecting of her, she's able to really explore who she is. A, I don't think that that's something totally designated to the Enneagram type one. And B, I think you could just as easily type Isabella as a type three. A lot of the genesis of this conversation is I was meeting with a group of students and I was telling my brothers that I was probably going to use this film as a as kind of a segue because it's kind of unpopular right now. I thought that they might receive it well because they have Disney Plus and they probably watched it, as most of them had. And I got all like, but I essentially got begged by my brothers, not specifically Seth, not to use it. He's like, use anything else. Please don't use that. And part of his reservation was that they're going to adopt certain ideologies attached to these characters that don't really represent them. And I do think if you look at Isabella as a one, I think you can make the argument she is a one. Mm-hmm. But I think if you make, if you use her as a strong representation of one, you're going to miss a lot. Right. I see a type three maybe resonating with her a lot. Because a lot of it has to do with performance and how I look and the putting your best foot forward and appearing that you have everything together. And there's also a lightheartedness to her that I don't is not often found in type ones. Yeah. If you're if you're speaking in the string in, in, in the strictest terms, yeah, if you're I, using kind of a stereotype. Yeah, I think just because we don't dive deep into these characters in the movie, it's hard for us to even start to try and put our own st- opinions on this i mean i i kind of think that when people are identifying the enneagram with Encanto, they were using just the the powers associated with the characters and the enneagram types it's not about more that's dived into the movie well i think that's giving them a lot of credit that's not what i've been seeing in my experience it's been a lot of like this is an eight look at it She's so strong. She has to take care of the family and lift the family burdens. And there's truth to that. But mm-hmm. again, this is exactly the point. Is is there a better way to understand these characters in a deeper range? And, and, and if this is a, helps you understand on the broadest of terms, like I said, I myself almost used it. Because I was kind of trying to find a connection point to try to explain the Enneagram um, to this group of, of students. But... Is there a better example? Yeah, I think so. Um, and then, is it Mirabelle? Is that how you pronounce her? The the main character? I, think. I believe so. I'm they they attribute her a nine. I think that I I, I vibe that. <laughs> I think that yeah. that's probably accurate. Oh well, I I was believing she might be four. And and that's the one I hear second most to nine. Now, what are your reasons for that? Um, I I just see her as. Um, you know, feeling very uh, as an outsider to the group for having not received the power that she was anticipated receiving. Um, I think that she is um, kind of throughout the movie 
an, an emotional ambassador of sorts sure. to the characters understanding themselves better, which I think is the strength of the type four. Um, and I think that even in the midst of like any brokenness that happens, she's like kind of a liaison to understand that brokenness is okay. Yeah. And I think fours are also a good ambassador of understanding that concept in life. Sure. So that's what, I mean, I kind of thought of. And I think that that, all that makes a lot of, do you, do you, do you see the argument for the type nine though? Oh yeah, I do. But I, I could see that as well. But I, as I was watching the movie, I was just picking up four themes and that's probably what got stuck in my head. I think this can be used either way and that's fine. Again, as it pertains to that character, I think that you're, all of that makes sense, all of your arguments. Um, but I think a lot of those arguments could be just as easily attributed to a nine, helping yeah. people understand themselves. Um, yeah, I think the, the song when she's describing her family at the beginning of the movie also is like has strong nine feelings of, I'm talking about my sisters, I'm talking about my mom, I'm talking yeah. about my grandma. And right. then trying to sneak out of the conversation with the townspeople not talking about herself right but she's a part of the family too and that's important yeah absolutely and and then the big the glaring stereotype Mm -hmm. that gets attributed to her as a nine is that she doesn't have a gift Mm -hmm. but she is the gift who helps bring unity to all of the other you know i mean like she's like this like glue that holds it all together Mm -hmm. which the type nine can be and that's beautiful again beautiful message but as soon as we start treating it as gospel and that and you think that someone could totally think that i'm being a little bit uh dramatic on this but i have seen it happen for years i have watched people say no that can't be that because this Mm. and i'm like if there's no room to kind of explore what we're talking about in in to the point of finding something true in 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 so far as you can because these are fictional characters i can't go ask you know, Isabella, what her core motivations are. She's yeah. not a she's not an actual person. Mm-hmm. So there's some flexibility that should be had there, and there are certainly times. I mean, you know, every so often you'll see. Uh, you know, I, I remember forever hearing, "Well, Darth Vader, Darth Vader's an eight, and because you know he's, I mean, he's so commanding in his presence and this, that, or the other. And it's like, well, are we talking about Anakin Skywalker? Are we talking about Darth Vader? What is the, what, what's the underlying motive? You know what I mean? And there's any number of cases that we could, we could bring those up and maybe that that's a whole other podcast for another time. But the purpose being that I'm just going to continue to come back to saying, try not to play so fast and loose with, with these types, but also not, there's, there's kind of a tension you need to exist within of saying, I think they maybe represent these themes, but I don't know if they are this type you know mm-hmm. and i think that there's a value in doing that the type two from that family that branch of the family the type two that everybody keeps talking about is julietta the mom mm-hmm. who makes these meals who heal people i think that's pretty on point yeah i can abide I mean, by that we're also just talking about like somebody's powers once again yeah absolutely but i, I, mean, I, I see s- the, the you see a little bit of nurturing there and but it's also like the we're talking about nine different personality types in a you know 
what is this, a one and a half hour movie? How much time do you yeah. get to know each character's yeah. core motivation? Well, and there's there's a dozen characters. Yeah. Is we you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. um, again, we're just talking about this is we're gonna talk, we're talking about ten if we include the grandmother right now. Mm-hmm. That's not to say anything of the spouses and yeah. You know, please forgive me if I'm butchering some of these names. Um, Peppa, the mom. That's the mother of the. It's the she's got the storm powers. Yeah, she's usually exemplified as the type four. Mm-hmm. Um, for being emotionally reactive. I think from having such strong emotions, mm-hmm. so strong that they can control weather. Yeah. Um, and and that is kind of the the an attribute definitely attributed to type four. You're talking about high highs and low lows. In a lot of workshops I've been in, we use this example of. Um, and I think this example came from a type four who was giving it themselves. So they said they, they the example they gave of, as to how it feels living in their foreignness is is being in a very small boat on a on a extremely turbulent ocean. So you're on these high waves and they crash down, right? Um, that one makes sense to me. Her kids, uh, Camilo is the type three they say because he's that's the ki- that's the kid who can turn into different people yeah and the idea there is supposed to be well threes put on masks they often try to impress people they're kind of performers so he's trying and there's little statements that are made throughout the movie of him trying to figure out who he is again i'm fine with it makes sense good analogy could work um i don't know that that he necessarily screamed three to me but i get i get it um, Antonio was the one who can talk to animals and his room was like slides and it's just like a fun house in his room and he's supposed to represent the type 7 who's, you know, vibrant and enjoyable and optimistic and just having a good time. I get that. Um, Dolores was the the one who could hear. So she's mm. in the house but she just can hear everything and that was supposed to represent the type 5 who is... Uh, often called the observer or the investigator so a little bit more you know in the background but also project you know, always listening always kind of always very aware of what's going on um, they describe type fives as having a very loud uh, internal life but a very quiet external life so she's listening more than she's speaking i think that there's wisdom and and, and a good example brought forth in that and then the last one is bruno Mm-hmm. who and this is I feel like um, I don't want to say it's a crazy stretch because again I get I understand what they're saying I think there's there's it's kind of cool but the the they attributed to him the type 6 okay okay so any ideas you, you just gave me a skeptical face so do you want to well, I, I would like to hear why they say the type six. Did so, did, did you have a different type? I mean, you... Well, I kind of... I mean... Maybe not, but... I hadn't... I didn't... Think about it much. I wasn't giving it that much thought. Um, okay. The, yeah. the reason that they attributed the type six to him is because he has these premonitions. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times they're often negative. And again... Not to call out any specific YouTuber or podcaster or anything, but there is there there have been videos that I mean the title of the video is something similar to 
like best example of the Enneagram. And, and I think that that's a little bit rough, but there is some wisdom we can gain from these sorts of perspectives because there are certain stigmas placed on Bruno, particularly that he's negative and dark and this, that, or the other because of his these premonitions, which are really just him saying what he's seeing. And mm-hmm. there is validity to that. And that's one of the gifts of the type six is they, they often can, you know, I mean, they're kind of always scanning for what could go wrong. And that doesn't mean that they're always, it's, they're certainly, certainly not always right, but they're not always wrong either. You know, I mean, there's, there's plenty of time where maybe looking at it from another perspective, they can illuminate some danger that other people aren't seeing. Uh, and so that's the idea behind Bruno as a six. Now he didn't scream that to me in the, mm-hmm. in the, and, and again, that's the weird thing about the movie is a lot of them are close enough that it makes me feel like someone read the Enneagram on a sheet of paper and then said, we'll make a movie about this. Yeah, I mean, they, the powers themselves kind of... Lend themselves. They seem to fit more with the types as a characterization yeah. rather than the individual characters and how they play out. Now, if we were to like assume something like what we saw about, um, I believe it was Antonio, where we got to see him like show about his care for animals and then receive his power, if that was something revealing in the movie about why the powers were given to individual people sure maybe there's that but we we really didn't get to see very many people's true motivations right so do you think you disagree with that regarding bruno i mean i would have probably thought he was i don't know maybe a type nine maybe type four okay yeah, well, the, and 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 that and then that's another whole set of stereotypes we could talk about, right? Is because if he's if he's a four, I mean, because that was my inclination, and I'll be the first to say it. I think that my stereotype, I maybe stereotyped him a little bit because he's you know you listen looks like he list, could listen to the Cure. He's ill. His whole the way he is drawn and and or I should say animated, the way that he's animated is generally kind of dark. And that's a attribute that can that that's a quality that can be attributed to the type four when really they're just kind of individualistic. But I don't think he is a four necessarily. The point is try to dig a little bit deeper and don't always paint in broad stroke, you know. And don't limit yourself. That's the whole goal here, right? Okay. So so now going the reverse of this, Eternals is such an uh, uh, such a, such a it's such an unfortunate entry into the. To the Marvel Cinematic Universe because I think that it had such potential. I think having uh, Chloe Zhao, who directed Nomadland, try to really bring in an artistic vibe into the MCU, which is, I do think, totally what her goal was, and I think that she succeeded in certain areas. I think that the movie, its fatal flaw and what prevents it from being a great entry to, to the MCU and what really limits it in scope of what it could have accomplished is that I think it should have been a series. I really thought when we first walked out of it, I wish that had been a series because making a movie that's almost three hours long with characters you don't know mm-hmm. was too much to ask, I think. Yeah, there was a lot of new ideas introduced that were very intriguing that we didn't really get to explore very many of them. No. At more than a surface level. No, so you're, yeah, exactly. So you're going to make this claim. These, these, I mean, these beings have been around for eternity, right? Like, these, mm-hmm. they've been around for forever, and they helped create the world we live in, and we're going to introduce them, and then there's, like, 12 characters 
that you're going to get to know. And we're going to shut the, a whole world history and twists and turns and all within three hours. And it's it's too long to because if you don't why did Endgame in large part worked because everybody is invested to every one of these characters. So every time they're on screen, let's say Ant-Man generates 25 minutes of screen time. You have three other movies, at least, that have been building that character up to this point Mm -hmm. so that you understand references and things like that. So when Sam shows up, even though he wasn't in most of the movie, it really is meaningful to you because you know Sam from a number of other pictures. This doesn't have any of those benefits. All of these characters are introduced immediately without any previous knowledge to, to contextualize them. Mm-hmm. So it's too much for that long. And it's too short to explore all the themes that it, it represents. Mm-hmm. Um, which is really unfortunate because I think that there's some incredibly cool themes. And I think this hit me about you know a day or two after watching the movie. But I was like, oh my gosh, I think I can make an argument, really, for the Enneagram types being brought up in these characters. Um, and I think that there's something even significant in saying that, not at all to make any religious claims or any, uh, or, or trying to give the Enneagram more clout than it even deserves. But I think that if we're saying that there are these intrinsic perspectives that humanity has, and we tend to kind of lean ourselves to one of these nine temperaments and habits of attention, I think there's something really profound in, in making a movie that has all of these kind of perspectives and forces and energies brought into the entirety of the material world. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Does it make sense? Mm-hmm. I was very interested in learning about the Eternals because I didn't have any historical knowledge of them. I haven't read comic books or anything like that. Um, so I'm always interested in these offshoot ideas that we're going to be exploring in the MCU, but I don't really feel like I got to learn too much more. Yeah. At at least not as much as I would like to from this because we were jumping around so much in covering all of human history (laughs) and action scenes in this and getting to know all of the main characters as much as you could in such a short amount of time. Well, and this movie was, I think, a particular bummer to you and I, that it wasn't handled better. It was a particular bummer to you and I because we both share an affinity in the MCU for the... The, getting, the side stories. Getting yeah. wild, well, and getting wild out there, right? Yeah. Like, oh, you're telling me there's people who have been, like, your favorite in the MCU is... Well, I don't... Actually. Oh, you don't know? No. That's just one of my favorites. Oh. Who am I referring to? Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange is who... Doctor Strange is your favorite enough that our nephew thinks that Doctor Strange is your favorite, right? Yeah. And he's not incorrect. Right. Right. Well, it's just an interesting new facet of the world. And I do like things that play with time to add a new dimension to any possibility of a story because it changes any possibility of where we're going to go so it's unpredictable you're interested in the world building too yeah Mm -hmm. which is something you haven't read the lord of the rings you haven't read them right 
No, I haven't read the books. You probably would be super about it because it's all world building. So the parts that like bore other people, you'd probably be super about. It's like, oh, this stone is actually one of the original stones that, you know, it's all that sort of stuff. Um, And I love that about you. And so I love sharing these with you. And so I remember, you know, there was a, we had some friends who were already kind of criticizing it before it came out, going, it doesn't look all that good and all that. And you and I were just holding out, I think, for being like, no, we're going to learn more. You watch that movie. And I want you to imagine a 10-episode series now. Think about this, where the first episode is building up the characters and what their history is. Yeah. And then you start to focus on each character in an episode, maybe one or two characters. Yeah. So now you have a more of a frame of reference. And then the last like episode or two, you do mm-hmm. that for the in-between episodes. And then the last episode or two, you bring it to the climax where we learn what? Like Icarus is the antagonist, essentially. Yeah. I think fantastic. I think I would have just been so... I mean, I think they would have had potential to be one of my favorite mm-hmm. things in the MCU. And I just think it was... It was, it was uh, poorly executed but and here it might come into the economic part of this in order to cast the cast that they had for a live action film yeah those same people might not have signed on for a television series a short series yeah yeah Yeah, and you're probably right and that's the that's the that's the real son of a gun when it comes to that's the that's the hitch and the get along right when it comes to creating these it's like spider-man mm-hmm Spider-Man perhaps may have ideally been brought into the MCU far before he was, except for that Sony owned him. So a deal mm-hmm. had to be worked out. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, where to, to give Marvel some, the Marvel Studios specific in, in particular some credit, they've done an gr- excellent job navigating all of this to the best of their ability. Um, anyhow, I wanted to bring up the way that I think these characters, and, and just is a contrast. Somebody's super into Disney and everything that they're doing. And I would venture to say there's probably a a solid overlap of people who might be interested in singing Canto and who might be interested in the MCU. Sure. I would suggest considering taking a look at some of these characters through this lens. Um, And this is like, like I said, I was like laying in bed, like the night that we saw this movie or the night after and going like, Oh my gosh, I think, I think that it may you know, they, they well represent the Enneagram. Uh, starting at the character of uh, Cersei, I think that it's she's a great example of a type two. Mm-hmm. Empathetic. She has a strong care for humanity mm-hmm. and for the planet and for nature. And, and I, I see a lot of uh, kind of an intermediary between the Eternals and mankind through mm-hmm. i think a caring and nurturing mentality uh there's a quote from the director that says that she was quote uh, she brought a beautiful sense of gentleness compassion and vulnerability that would invite viewers to rethink what it means to be heroic i think that the type three character would probably be uh, kingo camille nanjiani's character i mean once he becomes like a human what's his whole thing like he becomes an actor, you know, yeah. like he's, he, there is a flair to him. There's a performer mm-hmm. element. There's kind of like a show offy little, you know, mm-hmm. and it's in Bollywood of all places. Yeah. He's in yeah. Bollywood doing, yeah. Doing yeah. this dance and really like living his kind of best life, so to speak mm-hmm. it, throughout the movie. He's even, the whole thing is like, he's enamored with fame. 
Mm-hmm. He's enamored with this idea of becoming a star and in expressing himself through his through stage. Yeah. Through like this, like you know what I mean? For the type four, the character of Sprite. Mm. Very arguably the most heartbreaking character here. Yeah, I mean that was the the story I was most interested in. Yeah. Learning more about going into the movie because you're like thinking how does a child navigate living on earth for eternity without being discovered as to what they are or hurt because of that because they were a child (laughs) like right so it's like so i'm stuck in this state yeah forever kind of on the outside of everybody Mm -hmm. else on some level and then there's this longing you start to learn that there's this longing and this care and these deep wells of emotions that would come with i don't know living forever yeah but yet being trapped in something that doesn't seem to to fit them yeah yeah what they what they're 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 this inner identity and these inner these 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 this deep well of emotions that the character has it's sort of this like old soul and there's like some Peter Pan elements to it, but it's really kind of heartbreaking. Um, and I think that that energy is very, very reminiscent of the type four. Moving into type five, you have uh, Druig, who's living off by himself alone and doesn't really exactly seem as though he's uh, all that interested in interacting. He's not as interested in interacting with the world as a lot of the other, you know, he's, he's a little bit more reclusive. He's a little bit more to himself to the point where they don't even know if he's a good guy or bad guy at a certain point. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, He's, he's, I mean, I think you've got kind of a definition of, of an observer here to say nothing of the fact that, I mean, his power has to do with like, you know, minds, this one may seem a little bit unconventional to some, um, and, and this is this is one where I may maybe maybe stretching a little bit to try to, but I, I think mm-hmm. that the character of I think it's Fastos is how you say it, pronounce his name. This is the inventor character, though. You remember this? This is um. the one who fascinating concept in and of itself. You know, like mm-hmm. say, even when they say like, "Oh, I want to, I can help them make like." power through electricity or whatever," and they're like, "No, they're not ready for that. They need yeah. to maybe learn a little bit." But I think that I, I think I could would like to attribute to him the type six um, for two reasons. One, I think he can be underplayed sometimes just how intelligent the type six is um, and how inventive they can be. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, again, going back to the Bruno thing, right? It's like if you're, you know, and his is a superpower that is causing him to be, uh, have these premonitions. But if you take a look at it in terms of what's kind of underlying it, there's this, I think you can make the argument for this sort of like, discover new ways to do something you know um but he's also a little timid (laughs) you know what i mean he's also a little bit uh cautious he's also kind of content to live in security amongst the humans and call it a day Mm -hmm. i think that i think that 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 would be the character i would i would probably attribute that type to and then the next one is another one that I, I'm like is a little bit, I think maybe, I don't know if I'm stretching or not, but is the, the character of Makari, as I think how you pronounce the name, it's the that char- the character who's like extremely fast, mm-hmm. you know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. But everything, I think that you can make a case for a type 7 in that she seems generally optimistic from what we see of her. I don't think they explore her as, as, as an added to as great a depth as they do a lot of the other characters, which could have been resolved had it been, you know, a television series. 
she has a generally optimistic, I mean, she's literally fast moving. Mm -hmm. It's this like high intensive energy that's very, very go, go, go. Yeah, she was like the first one to like resign that she had experienced all the world had to offer. Yes. They come back and find her in the spaceship. So what does that say? Yeah. I'm going to go try all the food. I think that the seven makes a lot of sense for this character. The type eight, it's interesting because I think of, I, I, I don't know exactly where I would place Gilgamesh. It's difficult with Gilgamesh because he's, he's like the literally the strongest of them. And, and so there's, here's where you could kind of fall in, you know, there was a part of me that was when I was watching the film going, is he, is, is the character an eight? But again, that's very, very stereotypical. I don't know exactly where he fits. The character who I would absolutely place under the type eight would be Athena, uh, which is Angelina Jolie, which I think is actually, I mean, Athena, I don't know. Her name is Athena. But I'm like, you think, all I could, I mean, it didn't help that it kept calling to mind Athena, which is mm -hmm. the goddess of war. Yeah. Um, but she's, it's it's this, she's this incredibly powerful warrior who, you know, is, she's got a tough exterior. Uh, she's a good leader. She's dynamic and empowering. She's, I mean, I'm hard pressed to think of another word other than powerful. Uh, she's, she's, she is strong and the, in the most utter core definition of, of what that word means. The type nine I would give to Ajak. And again, in contrast to Encanto, this beautiful, actual, like, spiritual leader of the group. Mm -hmm. She's this character who oversees, and she has a greater knowledge than most of them have of what's going on and what needs to happen. And she's peaceful. Her abilities are to heal, and they actually, like, call her the bridge between the Eternals and the Celestials, are you kidding me? It's like a mediator. Mm -hmm. It's this person who has kind of like an inclusive energy to all of them. Who, yeah. who again, sees more than you think she does. I think that you could see her also in her own way as aloof. But she's this like mother figure who leads in a very, very gentle and unassuming fashion. And then finally, I think Icarus is a type one. Mm -hmm. Um there's even jokes, if I remember correctly, I need to rewatch it, but there's jokes, there's allusions to him being kind of like morally superior and the one who's, he's a, he's a little disconnected. Um, he wants to engage with the world, but I think that he sees the way to do so by, by creating and, and enforcing an, an order to it. Well, I mean, he left this girl because he was like, I can't lie to her. Yeah. But I also, like, believe that this is what's our mission. Yeah. Well, there's cracks again. Yeah, I think that they, there's allusions to him even being kind of self-righteous and kind of believing that his way is the right way. And that there is a, a certain measures need to be taken. It makes me think of almost like Baron Mordo, who's another great character in the MCU, I think, is representative of a one. Um, the antagonist from Doctor Strange. And, and there's this sort of moral superiority and this I know better and, and some condescension and, and also a separateness and a sternness and a rigidity in the character, um, but not without purpose, not just because he's angry or he's mean or he's, you know, a bully. It's the, he has this stringent belief that he adheres to. And I think that it, it creates a fascinating dynamic between the Eternals. And I think when you take a look at all these characters connecting, I, I think that would be, 
in a weird way, that's the anecdote to the problems I see in Encanto, which is why I kind of see these as like a, a strange mirror, a kind of chiasm of one another. Whereas Encanto, I think, in execute, I mean, is a movie overall, I would give Encanto a higher grade than I would give Eternals because I think it does more right than Eternals does. But Eternals is 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 at its core, I think, more intelligent, um, or at least goes explores the themes deeper. I'd be very interested if there's like an extended somehow version that kind of fleshes this stuff out, or I would be interested to see some deleted scenes. How did you leave Eternals? Um, well, I, I left wishing we had seen more of the story that was going on in between the scenes we did see. I thought it was very cool to see um, someone with a nurturing personality rise to be the leader of such a dynamic group of people. And how important that is. Yeah. Um, And how well she did in that. So that was interesting. The purpose, once more, is kind of just to say, do a little bit more searching. If you're interested in the Enneagram and if you've listened to this podcast, please don't walk away thinking that we're just, I'm just trying to dunk on either of these um, or trying to even elevate Eternals any more than because I think that it's a, a severely mismanaged picture. But I also believe that it offers some intelligent perspectives, especially if you're contrasting it with very, very broad understandings of personality types and motivations. Because again, keep in mind, the Enneagram is an extremely dynamic system that has to do with motivation and world experience and habits of attention and temperaments. And uh, even the nine types is just scratching the surface of really what the the, the, the wisdom that can be, you know, the Enneagram provides and the, the, the context that it can help give you to navigating a mindset that's awake and and mindful and a present um how would you how would you close it off Paige? i mean i would say that some of these ideas are helpful for a time period as an entry-level understanding um and it's simply fine to enjoy something for enjoyment's sake but also on this podcast with its title fiction to function i think diving in to the themes deeper is like what we're we were trying to explore here and so that's why we were going in to some of these things with um some criticisms and some of our hopes that we were missing certain aspects from each of these films thank you thank you Paige, for going on this this journey with me i was excited to talk to you about talk about this stuff with you and i'm excited for you to 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 be a little bit more front and center every so often people may not know but Paige is a huge behind the scenes figure and i think maybe what you maybe prefer behind the scenes a little bit yes (laughs) but i appreciate it a lot and i really do appreciate everything you do for fiction to function because your your uh i mean our social media accounts um you know, Paige is such a, she brings her wonderful oneness in organization, in, in structure to helping us put this stuff out in the best possible format. And I know it's not perfect, uh, but I know we're working towards it. And, and I'm really grateful for, for you and your friendship and for everything you, uh, you bring to Fiction to Function. So thank you very much, Paige. Yeah, thank you. I enjoy listening to this podcast as an audience member and um i know all the people that you've had on the podcast um really care about 
these topics you're talking about and you guys are having these conversations with each other regardless <laughs> so yeah um i i love listening to them when i can't be around for the actual conversation and i think others are hang. too you well can't... they're after my bedtime sometimes exactly so. you can't hang yeah <laughs> there you go all right well thank you Paige. you're welcome well there you go in closing aside from realizing i've been pronouncing Encanto incorrectly this entire time i would say if you view the gifts of the characters in the movie Encanto as examples of a person's enneagram type there's a lot of wisdom to gain particularly in the idea that our type is not the essence of us, it's just a part of who we are, and we don't want to confuse the part for the whole. But in terms of a direct example, it's lacking. Eternals does a good job exploring the profound significance that each type can bring to the world, but it also is incomplete and quite messy. All the more reason to keep discussing, keep discovering, and keep growing. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.